Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Thanks, SZ. It's our final show of the year, kickserveradio.com, and we are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. The team is comprised of seven-time Grand Slam champion, former world number one, Matt's V. Lander. He's in Haley, Idaho. He's the owner of Gravity Fitness and Tennis. Matt's final show of the year. You ready to roll? You got your A-game tonight? I got my A-game, Andy. Um, taught a bit of tennis today. I've been up on the hill skiing, alpine. I go cross-country skiing every day pretty much. So uh, I love winters, and uh, it's sad. It's been a, been a great first season for us, and it's sad that it's over. Well, and Johnny Levine's down in Phoenix, Arizona, and we'll be happy if he's got his B-game because that's a pretty good show if you do, Johnny. So how are you doing down in Phoenix? And are you ready to rock the season finale? I am ready to rock. Uh, it's good to see you guys. Phoenix is doing well, uh, trying to deal with this, this COVID deal. A lot of cases here, but um, weather is good, and we're hanging in there and uh, ready for the finale, Andy. Okay, well, speaking of COVID, I have to say that if you notice that I don't sound my best, we're waiting on a test, but I have a feeling it's not going to be good but I'm going to power through this anyway because we've got a lot of great stuff to get to in our season finale. We're going to talk a little Labor Cup tonight uh, because they showed, if you were watching a little bit of Tennis Channel over the course of the last week or so, they showed uh, you know some, some clips from Labor Cup's past, and I want to chat a little bit about that format and why it is so wildly successful. We're also going to talk about the Guillermo Vilas documentary, Settling the Score, which if you haven't seen it, you definitely need to see it. We're going to tell you a little bit about it without giving it all away, but it talks about the importance in Guillermo Vilas's life of him being acknowledged of having been the number one player in the world, if even for a short period of time, just the simple fact that uh, particularly in 1977, uh, his record was such that he felt that he deserved to be the number one player in the world. And this documentary touches on a lot of that. And in fact, Matt, you had, a lot to say in that documentary. So you're going to have a lot to say when we discuss it. And then finally, you guys, we're going to talk about the fact that tennis lost three of the all-time greats. Uh, Within about a four-day period, we lost Dennis Ralston, we lost Alex Olmedo, and we lost Gordon Forbes. And we're going to talk about their legacy and their contributions to our sport. But first of all, the news before we even get to Labor Cup is the announcement that Roger Federer has said that even if the Australian Open gets pushed back to early February, Mats Vlander, that he will not be ready to go. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean the Australian Open in general, it, it's uh, it's very um, a very precarious situation. Obviously, they got they pushed the tournament back because the Australian government decided to not let any foreigners into their country until the 1st of January. And then they have to quarantine for two weeks. And that would have put the players uh, straight out of the hotel room onto 
uh, onto the courts at Melbourne Park and play straight away. So that was impossible. Now I'm assuming uh, starting 8th of February that they want to have a little bit of a preseason, uh, ATP Cup maybe, maybe another tournament, all being played in Melbourne and Melbourne Park. So the players have some chance to to uh, get prepared. But but I mean, I, I have to say I'm, it's, I'm not sure... Uh, that all the players are going to go again, just like for the U.S. Open. I think there's a risk involved, and and I, I'm, I hope I'm wrong, but at the same time, Australia has uh, really shut down their country completely. Did you know that when you're coming back to Australia now, as an Australian, they put you in an airport hotel, and they throw your key away. So if you leave your room and you go down to the lobby and you ask for a key, they slap you with a fine of a few thousand dollars and whatever else. So they are really tough. And uh, I, I hope that um, I hope that players go in a way, but mm, it's, it's a very tricky situation. Obviously, without Roger Federer again, I'm starting to miss the old guy. Johnny, the, the fact of the matter is, if Roger Federer does come back to play and he's not ready by the Australian and the next major that he would be ready to play would be Roland Garros, assuming that that's played on time, it would be going on to a year and a half from the time that he had played his last competitive tennis match, which would have been the Australian Open in 2020. At age almost 40, what kind of expectations? It was one thing for him to come off of a six-month uh, layoff with knee surgery to come out and play in 2017 and win the Australian Open. Now the guy's almost 40, another knee surgery. Can we expect this guy to still have the kind of magic to which we have become accustomed? Or is it time for Roger to maybe consider, you know, what he's going to do next? You know, I, it's so hard to go against Roger Federer. He's my favorite player for a lot of reasons for like most people, I mean, he's just the, the greatest champion in the history of the game as far as class and, and style of play and just, you know, the amount of slams he's, he's, he's had. But I personally, Andy, think this could be the end. To hear that he might not be ready for the, for the Australian Open um, and then the French Open, I would suspect he might not even go to the French Open in, in the hopes that maybe he has one more Wimbledon in him, but guys are, are, are so dug in now and, and so, you know, in their prime, you know, the younger guys are now coming around and I just think it's getting tougher and tougher and his age is, is definitely a negative. I think that um, we might be seeing maybe the end um, possibly. All right. Well, what made me think of Federer, obviously Matt's was the fact that, the story came out that he didn't think he was going to be ready with that knee. But also, you know, we've been watching a lot of tennis channel classic matches and they had the battle of the generations. And we saw, uh, we saw Agassi Roddick and we saw Federer Sampras and we saw a lot of great matches, but then over this past weekend, they showed a lot of the labor cup, particularly that first one in 2017. And it really, lined up as though it was just going to be a glorified exhibition. But when those guys got out there and you saw John McEnroe coaching against Bjornborg and you saw Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer teaming up to play doubles and you saw these guys really getting after each other the way they did when this, when this new uh, event came forth, were you surprised at how successful it was or did you expect that? 
No, I didn't expect that at all. But I think I think any any event can be successful if the players emotionally show up and and care. I mean, we've seen it with. Uh, obviously, the Ryder Cup in golf, but even the President's Cup uh, in golf, where uh, the one team makes sense, the United States of America, and the other team doesn't make any sense at all, because even Canadians play for the rest of the world team, and they seem to care. So I think it's all about how players buy into it. I think that with Roger Federer, um, it's in a weird way. I think it's Labor Cup. And the Olympics, of course, mustn't forget the Olympics. He's never won the gold medal uh, in singles at the Olympics. And Labor Cup, he knows he can play that for maybe four or five more years. It's only two sets, a champion, uh, champions tiebreaker if it's one set all. He can still play doubles. Um, obviously, he's part of the ownership of the tournament. So I think he needs to stay match fit because the way he behaves during Labor Cup, uh, I don't think he wants to let go of that. I, I would say that Wimbledon is something he likes to keep playing. And then Labor Cup. But but in the end, I've always said in the last three or four years that I think Tokyo uh, 2020 was going to be towards the end of his career. Now, obviously, hopefully Tokyo is played next year, the Olympics. But um, I think he can still win that. You know, he can still win a two out of three set best of the world players at the Olympics. But Labor Cup, to me, that's what uh, is really driving Roger Federer. I've never seen him that excited in any team event, certainly not in Davis Cup, as he was in Labor Cup. Do you think that, Matt, the addition of having Borg and McEnroe coaching against each other adds an element of credibility to that event because you you can see Matt coaching and you know he's particularly in 2017 when he's out there coaching Query and Sock in a doubles match against Federer and Nadal I mean as far as Mac's concerned if Query and Sock could have taken them down which they lost a, a third set super tie break that would have been a pretty good coaching scalp for Mac to take. That would have been unbelievable. But McEnroe has been classic in these uh, in these Labor Cup matches. I, I still remember when he told Jack Sock a couple of years ago, and I think Jack Sock had his 25th birthday, and, and McEnroe said something. Uh, first of all, didn't realize the microphone was turned on. But he said, it's time, Jack. It's time to step it up. You got, the, you got this guy. You can play with him. And then he said, yeah, something that only John McEnroe would say. So he's really involved. I saw some of the Labor Cup highlights. And when, when Zasha Zvere beat Milos Raonic, those victory celebrations with Borg coming first, diving on top of Zvere and then, and then Nadal on top and Federer on top, you can't uh, manufacture that kind of emotion. So I think it's, it's a matter of everybody bought into it. This is the best time that Bjorn Borg has spent in the world of professional tennis since he was a player himself. So, Johnny, if we would have had Labor Cup back in, in your and Matt's generation, uh, obviously, you know, Matt would have been on the on the European team along with Stefan Edberg and Boris Becker and Yvonne Lind. That would have been a tough team. You'd have had John McEnroe playing on one team. You'd have probably had to bring in Connors. Who would we have been able to put out there to be able to compete with what those guys would have had? Because it doesn't seem like it would have been very fair. Can you think of anybody? Now, how did they divide it up, Matt? Was it Europe versus the world or, or what? Uh, so we did once in Barcelona, and it was Europe against America. Okay. North and South America. So we had Jose Luis Clerc. We had Guillermo Vilas, oh, okay. Andres Gomez, and then Johnny Mack. Uh, so uh, it was great. But, but again, it was great. That was an exhibition. 
we really didn't care much. It was good practice. It was good money. Uh, and then we hang out, hung out at night. Uh, and uh, that's not what the boys do at the Labor Cup. I mean, they, I think they even stayed in different hotels in Geneva uh, this last year. All right. So, Johnny, then the, the question begs to be asked, could, could the Americas have competed with what the Swedes and the Germans and the Czechs had going on at that time? Would we have been able to put something out there based on, you know, your boys, Anacone and some of those guys to play some doubles? Would, would we have been outmanned? No, I don't necessarily think so. I, I just okay, think, good. I, yeah, I mean, you when anytime you have Macro and Connors, I mean, those, those two are two of the greatest tennis players of all time. They're going to they're going to compete hard. Um, you know, I, I was kind of like you, Andy. It, 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 at first, I always thought this Labor's Cup was just a glorified exhibition. But when you see how Federer and Nadal um, took to the event, and I, and I and I really do believe that it's it's driven by the player's respect for Roger Federer, because I think he's the catalyst of that event. And so I think the players just really, you know, step up for him. And I, and, and I don't know if during, you know, Matt's time and Borg and Connors and McEnroe, if, if, if one of those guys wasn't involved like Federer, I don't know that it would have had the allure that it does today. So, you know, with the Davis cup, with the slams, with all, you know, all the major, tournaments outside of those I, I just don't see it I think that this labor cup is a hundred percent driven by Roger Federer and the respect that the players have for him and they want to produce for him you know there was there's a lot more love going around these days in the top of the world uh, uh professional tennis for the men than it was back when we played Johnny right. I mean there was no love between Lendl and Connors and McEnroe and so I think today I mean Federer and Nadal you really get the feeling they're they're best friends and I think Novak Djokovic has played, I think, in one or two of them. Um, and I think they respect each other way more uh, than we did back. Not me personally, but I think Jimmy and John obviously had something going. But I think also, and you didn't, you mentioned Roger Federer, Rod Laver. I mean, Rod Laver is is most probably the player we should talk about the most, being the greatest of all time, because he won the Grand Slam all for 1962. wasn't allowed to play until 1968 when he, I think, won two, and then he won all four again in 1969. So there is the greatest player of all time in my book. Well, and and to Johnny's point, yes, I think that that what Roger Federer has done sets the tone. To your point, Matt, the fact that it's called the Laver Cup just gives it an air of prestige. And then to have Borg and McEnroe as the coaches, I just think that the culmination of all of that, you're talking about a handful of the best 10 players that have ever played. And and then you add the fact that Nadal and Djokovic are participating in that there's two more of the top 10 of all time. I just think that the recipe for success uh, is, is, is right there. All right, another one of the greatest of all time that we want to talk about when we come back is Guillermo Vilas and this documentary settling the score that's on Netflix is must see TV for tennis fans. You're listening to kickserveradio.com part of the tennis channel podcast network. Guillermo Vilas. Was he ever the number one player in the world? We'll discuss it when we come back. Okay, everybody, you've heard us talk about Squad Pod on the show quite a bit, and I'm now joined by Melise Michael, and he is the product manager for Squad Pod. And Melise, tennis professionals at private clubs with their students, they like to use Facebook to communicate. So tell us a little bit about why Squad Pod 
might be different from something like just using Facebook to communicate? Yeah. Thanks for having me, Andy. So SquadPod is designed and built around something we like to call closed architecture. Everything you do in SquadPod stays confidential in our U.S. owned and operated communication platform that's based out of Scottsdale, Arizona. Unlike Facebook, where anyone can kind of find your pages, view your discussions, and even your photos, things in SquadPod are non-discoverable. And it's only accessible by specific people that you want to have access to that content. So it's private, it's confidential, and it's secure. But how does SquadPod handle my data? Because you hear a lot about these companies that are willing to share it with other companies or even sell it. Yeah. So we don't mine or sell any of your data for predictive analytics or training or anything like that. What you'll find out there is a majority of the social media platforms actually built on the opposite of what we are, which is open architecture and have no problem selling third parties, everything about you, your decisions, all your data. So within open architecture systems, privacy kind of becomes this illusion, almost like a full sense of security. Seems like there's lots of options on the places that I use SquadPod. Help me understand what those are. Great question, Andy. So you can use SquadPod on and off the court with family or even for your business and at work. It's got chat, video, file sharing, and discussions all in one place. Best of all, we're committed to being 100% American-made and protecting your right to communicate privately and securely. Yeah, I have to say, you know, I have SquadPod and I love it. And, you know, learn more about privacy and and SquadPod at squadpod.com slash serve. So that's S-Q-U-A-D-P-O-D dot com slash serve S-E-R-V-E. And and based on this conversation, I'd say that if you have Facebook, there's no reason you shouldn't check out SquadPod as a new way to communicate safely and privately. I highly recommend it. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. This is our season finale. And during the break, uh, Johnny Levine got scolded for accusing Mats Vlander of being a two-time Australian Open champion when, in fact, he's a three-time Australian Open champion. But a two-time Australian Open champion was Guillermo Vilas. And that's who we're going to talk about now. And it was the uh, the documentary that caught my attention. And I know you guys both saw it. It was on Netflix called Settling the Score. And it was about how several people took took up this uh, this project of sort of revisiting the ranking process and the ranking points to determine whether or not Guillermo Vilas got cheated, if you will, out of being acknowledged as the number one player in the world. Matt, so I'll start with you. You actually had several uh, several sound bites and appearances in the show. Uh, I'll just put it to you straight. Was Guillermo Vilas ever the number one player in the world? Yes, I think he was because he was so consistent uh, during a couple of years, and, uh, and he had that uh, run of wins. I believe he won 43. 
45, 46, something like that. And then he got beaten by somebody who was playing with that spaghetti racket, they call it, with the strings that had rubber bands in them. And they got then, uh, they became illegal. So that loss shouldn't have counted. So, yes, he was. Uh, obviously, won the French Open on clay, won the US Open on clay, Australian Open on grass twice. Never did anything at Wimbledon on grass. So I think some of that had to do. But also, we have to remember that Bjornborg was absolutely his worst enemy. They were good friends, but but he could not take down Borg. And, and I think that has something to do with the fact that we, that the people at the time didn't go along with the fact that Guillermo, no, he can't be number one in the world because Borg is there or Jimmy Connors. But, hey, there's a computer ranking and they miscalculated some of the points. And uh, uh, the, the Argentinian tennis journalist approached me about five or six years ago about this project. Of course, Guillermo Vilas is, is uh, not doing well uh, at the moment. He's, he's quite ill. Um, he's moved away from Argentina. So it's so such an emotional issue. But what he did for South American tennis, just for that reason, he deserves to be number one in the world. I mean, he really sort of put South America. Uh, I, I know that there's great players from there, but he really is the first guy, the first superstar from South America in men's professional tennis. You know, you can go back and forth. Did they not count all the points? And, and what did they do? Well, those days, it wasn't as organized as it is today, obviously. Johnny, the guy in 1977 won two majors. He won twice as many majors as uh, uh, Borg and, and, and Connors. He won twice as many tournaments as Borg and Connors. How could he not have been number one in the world with a 44-match win streak on clay, culminating in a U.S. Open win, uh, I believe, over Jimmy Connors in the final uh, of the 77 U.S. Open. How does he not end up number one for the year? I think there was some sort of mishap with uh, a certain number of tournaments. I don't know that they didn't count or something. Uh, the ATP has stayed really strong on on not giving in to the number one ranking, which I'm a bit shocked by. I know there must be a lot behind that result of them not wanting to relinquish it and give him number one. I, I don't understand why they wouldn't do it. Um, he certainly had a year that was as good as anyone's ever had. When you look at his overall results as, as a pro, I mean, he's right up there with the greats. I mean, he, he had four slams. I mean, there's a lot of guys that have had more than four, but he won the, the Australian twice. He's won the French. He won the U S open while it was on clay. It's still a U.S. open title. Matt's um, poo-poos the fact that he didn't do much at Wimbledon. But, you know, for us journeymen, Matt's two quarterfinals at Wimbledon, which you were a quarterfinalist, I'm sure, multiple times. You can't say that's nothing. I mean, um, and 62 titles, a 70, over 75% winning percentage as a pro. I mean, eight Grand Slam finals, tour finals win. He He had just an astounding career. And like what Matt said, coming from Argentina, you know, being the, you know, the greatest player ever to come out of there. He, he was a huge tennis guy in his era. And um, I was fortunate enough. I was still in college, but I got a wild card when I was playing at UT in the summer, I was on the junior Davis cup college team in 82. And I remember walking into the grounds and, and I was, um, awarded a wild card. It was the one that I got that summer and Jimmy Aries came up to me and he just yelled, Willie. 
And I, and I was like, what does that mean? Willie. And I said, what are you talking about, Jimmy? He goes, well, you play the number one seed, number three player in the world, Guillermo Vilas. And I just, my heart sank and I'm like, Oh my God. And I'm just like, you know, 18 years old. I thinking, know you played him. Yeah, I did. And it was, it was unbelievable experience. So I, I feel so fortunate that I got a chance to play him and I played on center court. Where was, there. What turn was that the U S open? That was U S clay courts in Indianapolis. Okay. And okay. that was 19, that 1982. Well, it was kind of a result that I had with Matt's. It was, uh, it was three and two. So it wasn't terrible. Okay. Uh, he ended up losing to a Swede the next round, Simmonson. Um, so he didn't have a great tournament, but I, I feel, you know, very lucky to have been on the court with that guy because I think he's a legend in the game for sure. Well, and obviously, Matt's his his history coincides with yours because, you know, he was the guy that you beat in the final of your very first major win at 17, beating Guillermo Vilas in the final of the French Open in 1982. Talk about we've talked about that win, but we've really never talked about your interaction with Vilas. I know that he and Borg were very close. What was your relationship like with him? Yes. Yeah, so um, obviously um, when you, you start a relationship with somebody if you play in a Grand Slam final. I always thought everyone I've played, I've had a, a good relationship with because you shared such great moments. Uh, but we have to remember Bjorn Borg won his last major at the French Open in 1981 and then 1982 comes around. And uh, the year I won, of course, uh, Jimmy Connors hadn't won the French. John McEnroe hadn't won the French. Guillermo Vilas had a chance to win again. Uh, and they all kind of, Lendl hadn't even won the French yet. So uh, they all kind of choked it, I thought, uh, against me. But Guillermo was a massive favorite. So two things quickly. I did speak to Chris Cremode, the previous CEO of the ATP, uh, about this situation. And his response was that as we in the ATP feels that if we allow this and we start digging around, then we're going to have so many more cases. Because if, if, if it's important for Guillermo Villas to be number one in the world, then you can start going is it important for people to have been top 10 in the world at some point? That would be a great uh, achievement for, for a professional. You were 11. That doesn't mean much. And suddenly you were top 10 in the world. So that was their uh, stand. They didn't really want to want to discuss it and, uh, and open up a can of worms. So I get that in a way. But back to Vilasta, Guillermo Vilas was the first Rafael Nadal. He played with more spin than Borg. Uh, he was uh, intimidating physically. He was a strong guy, huge guy, calf muscles thicker than my thighs, thicker than both of yours too. No, sorry. His <laughs> left arm was thicker than your guy's thighs. I mean, he was yeah. a bull. And in fact, we nicknamed, not we, but he was nicknamed the bull. And who's, who's the bull now? Rafael Nadal. Rafa. Yeah, so he really was the first guy to bring top, serious topspin to, to a tennis court. Well, I'm going to tell you, Max, they alluded to what you just said about, well, if we do this for Vilas, then if this guy wants to be top 10 in the world, and, you know, I'm not supposed to use this kind of language, you know, on the podcast, but I have no choice because that's chicken shit. That, 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 that's, a that's a terrible argument. And, and I mean, being the number one player in the world and the only Argentinian to ever, I mean, that's a, that's an exception that is worth making. And I just don't, I don't believe in it now. I will allude to something else that has come up with regard to 
Argentinian tennis, and that is the fact that some of these players from Argentina have occasionally been accused of performance-enhancing drugs. I mean, I hate to bring that up. Is that something that has potentially been a cloud over VLOS as well? We didn't hear about those things in those days like we did a little bit later on with Alberto Mancini and Mariana Puerta and Guillermo Coria to a certain extent. Is it something that potentially VLOS is paying the price for as well? I mean, Johnny, I'm going to let you go here, but no, I don't think so. Uh, it was so long ago, and uh, I mean, we only started uh, drug testing on the ATP tour sometime uh, early 90s, uh, and this is 15, 10, 15 years ago. And, and now I've always, Guillermo has always been a, a thick, stocky guy, and I cannot imagine. This guy, Guillermo Villas, loves the game more than any player that I have ever seen, to be honest. He wants to hit six hours a day when we're on the Champions Tour, the Senior Tour. And we're like, Guillermo, you're not going to get any better. But he wanted to hit ball after ball after ball. And Jan Tiriak, of course, coached Villas. And he was be out there and just feeding balls all day. And Guillermo, he, he had this kind of thing like Rafa Nadal. Like he wasn't really sure about his place in 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 uh, the world of tennis i don't know if he was comfortable potentially being the best player in the world but he certainly loved hitting tennis balls more than anyone johnny final word on this you know when we look back on the arguments of the greatest of all time i think we're, we're better served to try to make an argument for the greatest era of all time if we look back on the area era that we're discussing now does Guillermo Vilas at least have to be mentioned in and among Connors, Borg, McEnroe? And does Vilas have to be thrown into that as if you're going to put that era up as one of the greatest of all time? Is Vilas one of the, the main components? Certainly with four slams, you might question it. However, you know, he won three of the four. And I think the reason you'd want to put him in there is because I think his contemporaries, the Borgs, the McEnroe's, the Connors, those guys, Mats Lander himself would put him in there. So to me, if, if, if those guys would put him in there, then he belongs there. And I, I'm pretty certain they would. And Vilas was a unique guy. I mean, he played, played as a pro for over 20 years and he was a very accomplished person. I mean, he was a musician. He was a poet, a very deep guy, a very intellectual guy, you know, had a great relationship with Tyriac. He, he really was a, a, you know, bigger than life kind of guy on the tour and um, his results backed it up. And like Matt said, you know, for me, watching the documentary, not wanting to give too much away on it, it, it was very interesting. But I was I was really in the end um, left very, very sad at the end to see be lost and understand that the health problems that he has, because um you know, it's just it's just a tough deal what he's going through, but really a great champion. And um, I do I definitely think he, he is one of the all time greats, certainly on clay. And you make great points when you talk about what made up the man himself. And I appreciate you bringing that up. When we come back, we're going to talk about three of the great men in the history of our sport that we just lost this month. Three absolute legends in the game. Uh, that we are going to pay tribute to on kickserveradio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Please stay with us. You're going to want to hear more about Dennis Ralston, Alex Olmedo, and Gordon Forbes right after this. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, 
Matt's VLander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Vlander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I have never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with Matt is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with Matt's, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to mattsvlandertennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back, everybody. Final segment of the season finale of kickserveradio.com. And uh, we're going to pay tribute to three of the legends of the sport of tennis uh, that we lost just this month in December of 2020. Our kickserveradio.com team is comprised of the great Mats Vlander, two-time Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine, and myself, I'm Andy Zoden. And we are honored to pay tribute to the likes of three people, starting with Dennis Ralston that passed away this month. And, and Mats, Dennis was a guy that was an International Tennis Hall of Famer had a great playing career in his own right and coaching career and uh, a former USC Trojan Davis cup champion. Your thoughts on Dennis Ralston? Well, I mean, obviously uh, our thoughts go out to, to uh, family and friends. Dennis Ralston was a legend to us in Sweden. Uh, you, you put Dennis Ralston up there with Stan Smith and Arthur Ashe and Bob Lutz. Uh, and he was a classic American uh, Serbian volley guys for us, good-looking guy, part of the handsome eight uh, that that broke out and, and played professional tennis. So yes, and then of course I was lucky enough to run into Dennis while he was coaching Yannick Noah uh, in the early '90s, and Noah made a bit of a comeback, made the semis to the Australian Open uh, in 1990, which was my last semifinals in the Grand Slam, and Dennis was there, and you could tell that. Noah had changed his style because of Dennis Ralston. Dennis made him come in on everything. So, uh, so knowledgeable. But the, the, the thing that warms my heart the most is that I know that he stuck around the game and he taught hours after hours at the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs. And when you hear that, it's like the guy gave his life 
to tennis, knowing that you can never really repay uh, what the game has given to you. So uh, Dennis Wilson is, is, will always be a legend. You know, uh, you make mention of the fact that uh, he was part of the Handsome Eight. And when I was emceeing the Colorado Tennis Hall of Fame Gala, uh, I had breakfast with Dennis that morning. And I mentioned to him about, you know, being a part of the Handsome Eight. And he actually corrected me, Matt's. He said that it was actually the Handsome Seven and Tony Roach. And uh, so we all got a big kick out of that. He eventually became, Johnny, the coach of the SMU men's team, and he was the NCAA Coach of the Year, I believe, in 1983. So clearly you played against those SMU teams with Dennis Ralston uh, coaching the Mustangs. What are your recollections of, of Dennis as the coach at SMU while you were the number one player at the University of Texas? Yeah, we were always intimidated playing SMU, you know, largely because of them having this uh, world-renowned coach in in Dennis Ralston. We knew the guys were going to be well-prepared and and, and well-coached. And, you know, going into the matches, um, you know, with the coaching being allowed college tennis, you know, you can, the, the coach can give advice. We knew we were, we could be in trouble because Dennis had, had been there and been to, you know, five-time Grand Slam doubles champion, finalists of singles in, in a Grand Slam and had all the results, Davis Cup, everything. And so, you know, we would, you know, in my my era there, we were playing guys like, you know, Eric Carita and Rodney Harmon and and Jerome Vanier and 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 a slew of guys that were top top ten in the country. And and they were just well coached and well prepared. And so Dennis, Dennis to us was, you know, an idol. And um, you know, we were we were pretty much in awe of the guy and uh, it's very sad to hear about his passing and like matt said you know our our condolences go out to to his to his family for sure on that without a doubt and we want to thank our our good friend karen shot who we love dearly who's the director of tennis now at the broadmoor who was under dennis at the broadmoor for many years uh for everything that she's done to pay tribute and to get some information out on dennis and next guys i want to talk about alex olmedo who's another legend who had been at the beverly hills hotel for 40 plus years and uh my dear friend angie williams who uh, angie olmedo is is alex's daughter and i was chatting with her a little bit earlier and want to send my love and condolences out to her. But, but Matt's getting back to Alex. I mean, here's a guy that in 1959 wins the Australian open wins Wimbledon beats Rod Laver in 71 minutes in that Wimbledon final. And then also makes the final of the U S open. I mean, this is a guy that I think a little bit underrated for being one of the really the true greats in the history of the sport. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and also coming from Peru, uh, yeah. these South Americans back then, they, they knew how to play on every surface. They were, they were serving in Bali. They had great hands. Manolo Santana, he won Wimbledon as well. So I'm not sure what happened to, to South American tennis that everybody went backwards in a way and, and started playing from the baseline. But, but of course, they, they grew up on clay. But yeah, Alex Olmedo, um, one of these natural, talented legends that we really haven't don't talk about much. And I think we're, we're forgetting, maybe it's because we're getting older, Andy and Johnny, that we, we think uh, some of these legends are more special now than they were. But, but to me, it kind of goes out to, I think we in the professional world of tennis needs to do a better job in remembering uh, and honoring some of the great legends. Because, for example, in professional golf, men and women, they do a great job. Uh, at the Grand Slam tournaments. And, and I think we, we need to get back to that a little bit or, or get to it 
and, and someone like Alex Almeida. Not many people really know uh, that much about him. And he won two majors in one year, being Rod Laver, greatest of all time, maybe. Amazing. Yeah. Well, he won, he won an NCAA title um, at USC and also a Davis Cup title for the United States. And that was controversial uh, because of the fact that he never became a U.S. citizen. So there was a, that was frowned upon in some circles that they allowed uh, Alex to play for the United States. But as it turned out, he ends up winning the thing for the United States. And one match in particular that Angie pointed out to me was a doubles match that, uh, that he and Ham Richardson played against uh, Anderson and Frazier. They lost the first two sets, 10-12, 3-6, eked out the third set, 16-14. Well, apparently Poncho Gonzalez was there as a, as a commentator, and he pulled uh, Olmedo and Ham Richardson aside, and he said, listen, guys, he said, these guys are just returning out of a storm cross court. My suggestion is that you give something try that's a little bit unconventional, and that's that you stand in an eye formation similar to the way the Australians sometimes play doubles, which would eventually be known as, as Aussie formation doubles. And they had never practiced it. They never played it. And they took Poncho Gonzalez's advice, won the fourth and the fifth sets, six three seven five and ended up winning that davis cup title as a result Olmedo won both of his singles matches and the doubles and i know that that's one of his most proud moments but he was a guy that according to his loving daughter angie just always made you feel like you were about to go out and play your best tennis from a coaching perspective the uh, the outpouring of love that he has gotten from his former students uh, has been absolutely astounding, and and I want to I want to add my voice to that. I've only gotten to meet the chief as his uh, as his students referred to him at the at the Beverly Hills Hotel, uh, one of which was John Lovitz uh, from Saturday Night Live fame, which was one of his hugest fans, and uh, and we just can't say enough about the greatness of Alex Olmedo. Johnny, do you? I know you got to know. I think you got to know Angie's sister Amy Olmedo a little bit, who was a pretty good tennis player at Trinity. Yeah, I knew her from the juniors. Um, I did want to mention, and, and you you brought up, um, you know, Alex Almeida winning the NCAs, but you know, Dennis Ralston also won the NCAA singles championships from USC. Yep. George Tolley and and the two of them, ironically, maybe it isn't ironic, but both 1987 Hall of Fame inductees, same year, the two of them. Ah, oh, I did not know that. Very good. Well, they, they grew up at the L.A. Tennis Club together. I know that. And you mentioned George Tolley, and that was a name that Angie mentioned uh, a number of times. So thank you for bringing that up as well. Two legends for sure. Um, you know, when you talk about Hall of Fame, fame guys that were tennis greats, um, it, it is really an incredible thing. The two of them dying here in the last couple of weeks. Very sad and um, tremendous careers and tremendous people for sure two of them as was gordon forbes our our former teammate johnny at the university of texas our dear friend gavin forbes father gordon uh, who had a great career in his own right and in, in this case johnny i do want to start with you because you really did take a good look back at his career and you were astounded at not only his record as a tennis player but really where he shined the most was as an author Yes, uh, Gordon Forbes was was quite a personality, and he wrote uh, a very famous book called A Handful of Summers, which um, is kind of a memoir of his tennis time on the tour, and a very, very popular book, uh, probably recommend it to anyone who who follows tennis and is into tennis, and, and he was a great author and, and a commentator and, and, um, and, a, and a great tennis player, you know, finalist 
first of the French Open, I believe, in doubles with Abe Siegel. And, and um, you know, I think tennis, uh, the, the, the tennis family lost another legend in Gordon Forbes. And um, so we, we definitely want to send our condolences to his family and especially Gavin Forbes, who is uh, works as an agent for head of men's tennis at IMG. And he was a college teammate of ours, Andy. And, and uh, we always have an affinity for Gavin. And so our, our, definitely our, our thoughts go out to, to Gavin for sure. And Matt's, you know, not only did this guy make the finals uh, of the doubles at the French, but he won a French Open mix. So Gordon was a, was a major champion as well. Uh, I know you know Gavin a little bit. Any any thoughts on Gordon from from your years being out there? Yeah, I actually know Gavin really well. Um, I was with IMG uh, for a long, long time, and uh, I've known Gavin for oof, I don't know thirty years, not, pretty much. Uh, nearly as long as you guys, but obviously playing together with him. Uh, I think Gordon Forbes, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's guys like the book he wrote, Handful of Summers, uh, players like that, that, that care so much about, about being out traveling, playing tennis, pursuing their passion, that they actually write a book about it. They kind of pave the way for then the uh, uh, sort of the, the legends of our sport, uh, Torben Ulrich was man is uh, was obviously a good friend of his. Uh, there was a, sort of a hippie movement in those days, uh, and then then you got to bring up the John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors, Ily Nastasi. I mean, there were so many characters, and it starts with somebody like Gordon Forbes who who takes the time to actually write about it uh, and, and makes uh, this intriguing life sort of bigger than, than uh, people realize. Such great personalities. So, so yes, Gordon Forbes, what a, what a great story that was. Well, he wrote three books, actually. He wrote A Handful of Summers, which was uh, published in 1979. Too Soon to Panic came out in 1995. And then I'll Take the Sunny Side, a memoir in 2017. So he was a, a three-time published author. And I will just add to that to say that I was fortunate enough while working as a young tennis pro at the Lakeway world of tennis to have had the opportunity to play some doubles uh, against Gavin and Gordon Forbes with Billy Freer, who I was working for at the time as my partner. And uh, Gordon was in Austin, Johnny visiting Gavin while uh, I think you had just turned pro. I had, I had just turned pro as far as being a teaching pro is concerned, but getting to know Gordon Forbes a little bit the way I did at the time is something that, I got to cherish more and more over the years when I really got to realize exactly who he was. So uh, we will just, we will miss Dennis Ralston, Alex Olmedo and Gordon Forbes dearly. And I'm just so glad guys that we have an opportunity to be able to put out uh, to the airwaves, to the listeners of, of tennis. Um, the fact that, uh, that these three guys uh, all left us within a week's time in 2020 to just add to what an unbelievable year 2020 has been. Matt, any last words before we check out for the season? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the 2020, I mean, imagine that's incredible how unexpected and how sad, in general, sad. Um, obviously, there's been some highlights with me uh, and, and you guys being professionals uh, in, in the sport of tennis. And I'm proud. I'm proud of how the players have acted throughout 2020 and how they, uh, you know, they went over and played the U.S. Open and how they got played the French Open. And uh, so I'm very proud. But at the same time, that must never overshadow the pain and, and the suffering that uh, a big part of the population has gone through and countries and, and the economy and, and different places. And then, of course, 
2020, what's happened in America has been incredible with the pandemic and then Black Lives Matter and then this whole thing with, with the, the election of our president. I mean, it's, it's just, you couldn't write this book really. So I'm glad that it's over soon and I'm hoping 2021 is a, is a lot more positive. Johnny, any thoughts on uh, closing out season one of kickserveradio.com with the, the three of us? Well, it's been a lot of fun for me getting to be with you guys and do these shows. It's, uh, you know, tennis has obviously been been such a huge part of my life and I'm passionate about it and to share it with you guys and talk talk tennis has been been really, um, you know, one of the main positives I can pull from from 2020. And I think that maybe a silver lining for tennis, for at least the professional tennis players is maybe there's a new appreciation for, for being on the court when they've been forced to miss it for so long and uh, maybe not take it for granted like they used to. Just appreciation, appreciation for life, appreciation for, for what they do uh, for a living and, and being able to get on that court knowing that it can be taken away from them like it, like it did for, for many months. So maybe there's um, a positive there, but for me, um, being uh, involved in this podcast with you guys this year has been uh, been tremendous and uh, look forward to 2021 doing the same thing. Well, I want to thank you guys for making it an unbelievable first year. We, we also have to thank, you know, the likes of from starting at the very beginning, the Steve Flinks and Joel Druckers of the world and Jim Courier coming on with us and Chris Mad Dog Russo, Mary Carrillo, Yvonne Lendl, uh, Andy Roddick, uh, Stefan Edberg, um, you know, Jimmy Arias, I, I, I'm sure I'm leaving some people out, but we had such an unbelievable run of guests this year. Thanks largely to you, Matt. So thank you very much. We look forward to having many more great ones this coming year. Uh, Andre Agassi is on the list and a whole bunch of others. We want to continue to make this bigger and better. We do want to give our love to the aforementioned legends that we lost this year and their families. Um, but uh, crazy, crazy first year. Hopefully 2021 is a better one. And I want to thank you guys for making this a very special experience for me to be able to talk tennis with two greats like yourselves. How about a shout out to Jeremy? There you go. Yeah, we got to give out a shout out to Jeremy Brisky. And we want to give a shout out to those at Tennis Channel, uh, Ari Cohen and David Egdis and uh, Alexa March and all the great folks at Tennis Channel, Eric Abner and uh, Andy Chu and all the folks that are doing everything that they do at Tennis Channel. Uh, we love what you guys are doing, and we're so proud and pleased to be a part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. This is KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Andy Zoden on behalf of the great former number one, seven-time Grand Slam champion, Matt Lander, two-time Texas Longhorn All-American, Johnny Levine. Have a great new year, and we'll catch you in 2021.